Our sermon today is taken from 1 Peter 1, verses 3 to 9. This is the word of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible with filled with and, and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls that says the lord amen thank you devin friends let's pray one more time before we enter into the sermon father teach us clearly what you have spoken in your word let every understanding we might have had about you or how we're saved or whatever else that this passage may present to us, not be the guiding functional thing that we go off of, but rather help us lay down those presuppositions and take up yours as you've revealed it in your word today to us. And Father, show us Jesus. Let us fall in deeper love with him as this passage points to the love of the triune God um, expressed to us, Father, fully, um, on the cross of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Friends, again about the membership meeting, um, if you could come to that. If you're a member at CCC, please please come to that. We need, um, we need at least 30 of you here, and I was hesitant to mention that number because that's, we don't want that to be the maximum. Like We want that to be the minimum, okay? So please come uh, and join us after the service uh, uh, for a few announcements, uh, exciting ones about big things uh, for the future of the church. All right, so we're going to continue today in our series through the book of First Peter, and let me just remind us of what's going on throughout the whole book. Peter, the author, has one main goal, okay, and his main goal is to encourage Christians who are being persecuted at the time by a Roman emperor named Nero to keep going. Keep going. I know you're persecuted. I know it's hard. I know right now your path may seem like it's going through fiery trials, but keep going. And he does this encouragement through many ways. Last week, we did the introduction of the letter, verses 1 to 2. And now we're going to be doing the opening of the letter, uh, verses 3 to 9. And usually, you know, when you're counseling somebody who's experiencing pain, what do a lot of people do? What do you do? What do we do when we counsel people? Usually, it's, you know, we, we sometimes, I think, people tell, you know, tell people to pull themselves up by the bootstraps, right? Suck it up, right? Just, just do right, do good. If, if you do the good and the right things, if you feel the right things, the pains are going to go away. Or sometimes we tell people to think about a perspective, you know, positive thinking, do this, think this, so that the pain will go away. Or, you know, some of us take our friends out, throw back a few beers, you know, so the pain will go away. There's many different responses to pain. But generally speaking, they all revolve around focusing on doing something in order to make the pain go away, right? Do, do this so that pain goes away. But Peter has a completely different approach here. He doesn't tell him to do anything. He instead reminds these persecuted, pained Christians 
of something that has been done to them. And then he goes on saying, this isn't so that the pain goes away, but so that it would be used for another purpose. Okay, so three things I want to point out from the passage. Our first point is the God who eternally loves, the fire that painfully refines, and the reason why you'll keep going. The God who eternally loves, the fire that painfully refines, and the reason why you'll keep going. Let, let's jump into point one. The God who eternally loves. Take a look at verses three to five with me. Okay, Peter opens here, again, not by telling these hurt Christians anything to do, but by systematically breaking down the ins and outs of their Christian salvation, of what God has done for them, right, or, or to them. Why? Because a deeper level of understanding of how something works produces a deeper trust, okay? That's just how rhetoric works. That's how persuasive rhetoric works. You know, you see in car commercials, you don't see the guy, you know, the narrator say, it's a good car, trust me, buy it, end. That's not how those go. How do those go? They break down the car into more detail, right? The way the emergency system works, the quality of the engine, you know, the theft security system that it might have. It breaks it down to the ins and the outs. Why? Because they want you to be convinced that it's reliable. You know, look, look at the minute details. Look at how it's all working together. That's what Peter's doing here in verses 3 to 5. He doesn't just say, you're saved, so be happy in that. But he breaks it down for them. Okay, that they may know the ins and outs of their salvation that produces within them a deeper trust for it. So let, let's take a look at it. How is a Christian saved? One, first, the whole thing. And when I say the whole thing, I mean the whole thing. The whole thing was initiated by God the Father. Look at verse three. Blessed be God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. You know, Mercy, by definition, means that it's mercy, that there's not an ounce of merit. There's not an ounce of personally earned or deserving by us. See, it's not 50% mercy, 50% us, you know? It's not 80% mercy and 20% us. You know, if we claim Peter is saying it is, the whole thing is according to the Father's mercy, we can't even say it's 99% mercy and 1% us, what I did. You know, we often think, I think when Jesus dies on the cross, that's kind of like a gift presented to me by God. And now it's up to me. It's, it's something within me. It's whether or not I can produce the faith to receive that gift or whether or not I am humble enough to admit that I'm a sinner that needs grace. And those who have faith and those who are humble enough, they accept him. And those who don't have faith and those who aren't humble enough, they don't accept him. Okay, that's often how, how we think. But don't you see, if that's your system of salvation, if that's the in and outs of how we're saved, if that's how salvation works, don't you see, you still have room to say that it's not fully mercy. It's not wholly according to the Father's grace. Why? Because my humility, you see, and my ability to muster up some kind of faith is a part of the equation. It's a part of the reason why I'm saved. It's a part of the reason why somebody else isn't saved. You see, that system of salvation gives room to say to somebody who didn't receive Christ, well, you just should have been a little more humbler. You know, you should have been a little more wiser. You should have had more faith. You should have been more open. 
What are you implying there? What are we implying when we say that? What we're saying is, well, you should have been a little bit more like me in that 1% of faith that I had and you didn't or whatever, right? That's why I'm saved and you're not. Now, you know, you, we might hear that and say, I'd never say something like that. You know, I'd never be, I'd never be saying something that prideful. Well, I know you probably won't. It's not a matter of whether or not you'll say it. It's a matter of whether or not your system of salvation leaves you room to say something like that. You see? What does Paul say in Ephesians 2? I have no room to boast. It's not about whether or not you will boast. You probably won't. But it's about whether or not your system of salvation gives you even the room to boast. If you think that your faith is your doing, that your faith is something that you intrinsically produce within yourself, okay? If you receive Christ because you've per personally humbled yourself, if that's your system of salvation, that still leaves you room to boast, regardless of whether or not you choose to take that room to boast. It still leaves you room to boast. But Peter's system here in 1 Peter 1, verses 1 to 6, Paul's system, Ephesians 1 and 2, Romans 8 and 9, Jesus' system in John chapter 6 and 9, the whole Bible system says what? There's no room to boast. There's no room to boast. The whole thing, the whole thing was according to the Father's mercy. Isaiah 65, verse 1, what, what, what do you think that means? I've been found, I've been found by those who did not seek me. All of us have gone straight away, okay? So the first detail about our salvation is that it was 100% God the Father. Even us having the faith and the humility and the ability to receive Christ was given by the Father. It was a gift from Him. You have questions about that. We can talk about it more later. But let's continue in verse 3. According to uh, His great mercy, look, look, look at this. He caused us, not I caused myself, he caused us to be born again to living hope. Look at the language there. You're born again to living hope. You didn't grow up into a bigger hope. It's not like God found a 1% of hope seed in you and then he watered that 1% and then that hope grew. No. If you're born unto life, what does that imply you were before? Dead. The distinction isn't from smaller to larger. It's from dead to life. Again, what did Paul say in Ephesians 2? Once we were, what, sick in our transgressions? No. Once we were dead in our trespasses of our sins, but now we've been made alive unto God through Christ. And I, I've used this analogy before, but the picture here that's being painted is not of us drowning, you know, and some of us are reaching out to God and some of us aren't, and God saves those who are reaching out to him. No. The picture the Bible paints is that we're all dead. We're at the bottom of the ocean in a casket under the deepest sea cliff eaten by sharks. We're dead. Spiritually, we have no heartbeat at all. But yet God caused us to come to life. Not just the possibility of life if we so choose to take it, but to life, he caused us. He grabbed us from death and thrown us to be born unto living hope. And see, this addresses a lot of the fear that you might have heard people have about receiving Christ or about becoming a Christian, or perhaps a fear that you might have about being a Christian. 
or receiving Christ. You know, I hear a lot of times people say, well, I just don't want to be, I don't want to sound prideful, you know, to say that I'm, I've received Christ and my life is now going to change and I'm a Christian now and I'm done with my old ways. I don't want to sound prideful. You're not being prideful. Not at all. There's not an ounce of what you say is prideful when you say God has brought me from death to life. You didn't do anything. It was according to his mercy. You know, and then you ask, but I don't deserve this. You know, my life's been a total mess. I know. I know it's been a total mess. It's not about what you deserve. It's about his mercy. Let, let's continue to dive deeper into the ins and outs of salvation here. Stick with me. How does God the Father, according to his great mercy, how does he cause us to be born again from death unto life? Look at the end of verse 3. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay. This is covenantal language, and I don't have time to explain all about what a covenant is, but here it is in a nutshell, okay, wildly simplified. You know when someone's underwater, which part of the body do you make sure goes above water first if you want to save them? Is it the hands? Do you make sure his hand is above water or her hand, or do you raise their feet above water or their elbows? No. What part of the body do you raise above water first? The head. If the head is alive, the whole body is alive. The way God the Father brings you up to life from the bottom of the deadness of the ocean that we're in is not, spiritually speaking, by bringing your head above water. That's not what he did. It's going to sound weird, okay? He does it by attaching you to a different head, spiritually speaking. Who is that? Jesus Christ. Why do you think the church in the New Testament is called the body of Christ? Jesus Christ is your covenant head. He represents you. As long as he lives, you live. I know a pastor that once said this in a sermon. You know, he took his daughter late to school and it was his fault. He was, she was late because he woke up late, right? Um, a fault familiar to many of us parents, or maybe just me, I don't know. Um, anyways, on the way to school, the daughter started getting nervous, right? And, and she's like, God, Dad, you got to take me there faster. You got to take me there faster. I have three demerits already. If I get a fourth one, then I'll get punished. Okay, and a few more minutes passed. Traffic picked up. And by this time, they're already late. Okay, it's clear they're going to be late. And the daughter, the daughter realized something. And she started to get really, really, really angry. She said, hold on a second, Dad. Why is it you're the one who's late, but I'm the one who's being punished? And the pastor said in order to distract his daughter from blaming him, he used that opportunity to give her a theological lesson on covenant headship. <laughs> said, that's very true. That's very biblical of you. If I fail as a father, you experience the consequences. But if I succeed, see, you get blessed. You know, that's a silly example, but that's covenantal federal representative headship in a nutshell. You know why you're saved? You know why you have eternal life? Two things. Because Jesus Christ succeeded. Your covenant had succeeded to live the perfect life that we all fail to live. And as a result... He succeeded to earn the eternal life none of us deserve. One. Two, because God the Father 
according to his great mercy, decided to include you as a member of the body of Christ. And he's decided to allow you to experience the perfect righteousness of Christ, your head, to represent you before the holy throne of God. That's why verse 4 says, look at it, your inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, because your representative, Jesus Christ, is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. You know what this does? This addresses another fear that many people say, this is the reason why they don't want to be a Christian. You know, what if, I, what if I receive him now, and then in the future, I fail to live up to what I've said I was going to be? You know, what if I fall back into idolatry? What if I fall back into coveting? What if I fall back into laziness? What if I slip up into these sins that I'm so accustomed to be doing? Well, it probably might happen. <laughs> it probably will. And you shouldn't do it. But if it does happen, if it does happen, If the Father has attached you to your covenant head representative, you won't fall back in such a way to where you'll perish because your covenant head is above water. He's imperishable, kept in heaven for you. And you might fall, but you won't fall back in such a way to where your status will once again be guilty and dirty before God because your covenant head who represents you now, his righteousness is yours. He's undefiled. What does the hymn say? Behold him there, the risen lamb. He is my perfect spotless righteousness, not me. Look at him, the unchangeable, the great I am, the king of glory and of grace. And you'll never fade away from salvation. Why? Because your covenant head never will. This doesn't give you an excuse to sin. Okay, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. This doesn't give you an excuse to sin, but... If anyone does fall into sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is imperishable. He is undefiled. He's unfading. He's above the troubled waters in heaven, guarded. Continue verse 5. Guarded by what? By God's power. Do we think so little of God's power that it might fail? He'll never fail. That's why if you've been attached to Jesus Christ, your covenant head representative, your salvation too will never fail. Because you can't lose something you never earned. That's what Jesus, that's why Jesus said, those whom the Father has called unto me, I will raise up. I will raise up on the end days. It will happen. Your salvation is secured. See, there's no room to boast. There is no, not an ounce, not a single inch of room to boast, to be prideful. Why are you saved, Christian? Not because of anything in you, but because the Father has had mercy to give you faith. Faith to do what? To believe in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. And by doing so, he's attached you to him as your covenant head. That's why you're going to persevere to the end as saved, because he's righteous and he'll never fail. That's why you'll end up with him in the last time, verse 5 says, because your righteousness is being guarded by the power of God and the person of Christ in heaven for you. You see how precious you are to him? Do you see that? Do you see how precious you are to him? He'll never let you go. Ever. Now we say, you know, all this stuff, you know, it can be empirically proven, okay? What you're talking, when you say things that are imperishable, undefiled, unfading, okay, by definition, you're talking about not a material thing. Any matter perishes, 
Okay, it's defilable at some point and it fades away. What you're talking about here is something eternal, something beyond this material world. How can you base your life on something that can't be touched or seen or observed or smelt or empirically proven? How can you do that? Well, I can't spend too much time on this, but I decided to do it anyway because I think it could be helpful for, for some of us. I wanted to share an interview that Tim Keller had once with a, a guy named Anthony Cronman. Anthony Cronman is a professor at Yale School of Law, and he specializes in contracts, bankruptcy, jurisprudence, social theory, and professional responsibility. I mean, if there's anybody, right, who demands empirical evidence, you know, before he jumps and believes in something, it's probably this guy, okay? And now he's not a Christian. He's not a Christian. But yet even, he said, he even wrote a whole book about it. He said, it's impossible for anyone to not believe in the eternal, to not believe in something that's imperishable, undefiled. He said, by necessity, everybody has to acknowledge it. Why? Why? Well, for 50 years, this guy is a self-proclaimed atheist. He calls himself an Aristotelian pagan. Okay, he's a materialist. Not that he likes to shop. What that means is that all he believes in are matter, things that are tangible, things that are seen, touched, felt, smelt, right? Uh, that's all that he believes in, and nothing beyond that is real. But for 50 years, he couldn't make sense of one thing, and it hit him like a ton of bricks. He asked himself, why does my worldview, how does my worldview, and I quote, he said, his own words, support the reality of human preciousness? How does my worldview support the reality of human preciousness? He said, if all that's real about humans, okay, is all this empirical stuff that can be seen and touched and felt, okay, if that's all that's real about us, our skin, our neurons, our atoms, our blood, our fat, our flesh, if that's all that we are, then by logical necessity, if you have any kind of logical integrity in your thinking, by logical necessity, all we can say we are is really, 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 really complex fertilizer. That's all we are. If I want to acknowledge the idea of human preciousness, that we have value and worth beyond what's empirical, beyond just being complex fertilizer, then I have to say, I have to admit, there is a reality beyond what is seen and touched, what is empirical, beyond time and space, beyond the material world, beyond the ravishes of time, something imperishable, undefiled, unfading that gives us worth. He said, and I quote, I need to believe in something that's eternal in which humans derive meaning, value, preciousness from. He went even as far in the interview to say the only worldview that gives me, that allows me to have that kind of basis, is the Christian worldview. Although he's not a Christian. Referring to Genesis 1 and 2 implicitly that we're made in the image of God, but I think also implicitly referring to our system of salvation. That we're precious. You know, you can't make sense of a lot. You can't make sense of a lot of things if all that you claim to be real is matter that's perishable, defiable, and fadeable. Here, Peter is saying he exists, the eternal God, who not only made man in His image—that's why we're precious—but also gave His people His righteousness that could they could have never mustered up on their own. Okay, I'll stop there. But here's the thing. Okay, it doesn't mean that when a Christian receives Christ as Lord and Savior and that we've been attached to our covenant head representative, that his righteousness is ours, it doesn't mean that we'll no longer fall into sin. We just read that in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 earlier. My little children, referring to Christians, I write to you so that you may not sin. But if you do fall into sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. Okay, Meaning Christians, you can still fall into sin. But 
um, although you are undefiled because of Christ and, and, and your heavenly legal representation will never fade, yet we can still fall into sin today. It doesn't mean we can't slip up and, and, and fall into sinful acts and patterns uh, some periods of times longer than others. So, okay, let's go to point two. We saw how God in point one secures our eternal legal status as his righteous children, not because we're righteous in ourselves, but because he brought us from dead to life and attached us to our covenant head by giving us faith to believe in him. And by that, we now trust that his righteousness is ours and not our own. But yet, how does God deal with our current sinful realities on earth, the tendencies that still remain today. Point two, the fire that painfully refines. You know, it's not just, this whole thing is not just intangible, irrelevant theology for the future. It affects us today. How? By giving us the ability to rejoice in trials today. Go to verse six. After Peter says all this amazing, transcendent, eternal truth about our salvation, he brings it down. He says in verse six, in this you hope, in this you rejoice. In this thing that seems up here and out there, in this now, today, you rejoice. It affects you today. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Trials in verse 6, it literally just means unsettlement. Okay, you're being unsettled, you're being rattled. Okay, imagine a river when it's being rattled by a storm and the wind and, you know, what happens? All the dirt from the bottom kind of comes up to the top. Right? And in verse 7, the picture here is the molding of gold. How do you purify gold? Well, you do it by unsettling it with heat, with fire. What happens when you put gold in fire? All the impurities come out, and once it gets out, it gets killed by the fire. Okay? And, and the goldsmith uh, ha- has to do that hard work. But notice the imagery of purifying gold here. In order to be purified, the gold must endure the fire. That's the imagery Peter chose to use to describe our growth in our holiness here on earth today, okay? The goldsmith can't just say, you know, you know, put the gold in there for a little bit and take it back out. No, he has to leave it in there for a while, for a while, for it to be purified, for the dross to arise. Okay, if you've been in the Christian circles for a long time, there's a high likelihood that you've been fed a bad understanding of what I just said, okay? Usually, how do people use the biblical doctrine of you being saved to deal with pain? Usually, this is what they say. Oh, you're suffering? You know, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it because you're saved. Your eternal salvation is, is solved, so don't be sad, okay? Be happy. That's how it's usually used. You're saved. Don't be sad. Be happy, Uh, In this salvation you rejoice, right? You should not feel any grief at all. But that's not what Peter is saying. Look at it again. That's a gross misunderstanding. See, our doctrine of salvation is not meant to delete the heat because if that's the case, the gold will never be purified. Look at verse 6 again carefully. Our system of salvation isn't supposed to make us feel all joy and no grief. Our system of salvation causes us to be able to experience joy and grief at the same time. In this you rejoice, joy. In this you rejoice, that's an emotion, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Joy and grief. Humans aren't like old operating systems that only has the capacity to operate uh, one application at a time, 
No, we're more like modern operating systems. We have the capacity to operate multiple applications at the same time. We, we're not limited to just feeling one emotion at a given moment. We can feel multiple complex emotions at any given time, okay? Now, what, what Peter is saying here, see, you, you gotta hold on to joy and, and grief at the same time. Someone who holds on just to joy and no grief is a repressed person. It's a repressed person. You're repressing the pain. The Bible promises that while you're in this world, there will be suffering. We just went through the whole book of Ecclesiastes. Romans 8, you know, we're groaning. We're groaning with this, with this uh, suffering, eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God. So, so if you don't feel grief, either the Bible's wrong, which I would say it's not, or we're denying it. We're repressing it. We're suppressing it. We're avoiding it. We don't want to acknowledge it because to acknowledge it is less Christian. Whoever said that? Whoever said that? It's the most unhealthy thing to say. But on the other hand, someone who holds on just to grief and no joy is a depressed person. You see? Because there's no living hope. There's no transcendent hope beyond this world. If you hold on just to grief and no joy, you're depressed. If you hold on to just joy and no grief, you're repressed. You're suppressed. Okay? And, and, and guess what? If you keep repressing the grief, if you keep avoiding the heat, if you keep denying that it's hard, guess what? Your impurities will never surface. You'll never have the courage to engage in it. But on the other hand, if you engage in it without hope, if you engage in this heat without hope, all you feel is grief and no joy, your impurities will not rise either because you'll be burned up alive. You'll never be able to endure it. It'll eat you up. You know, and to be honest, those two things are very interrelated, right? If you have no living hope, you're not going to have the courage to face the fire. But the Christian, you see, the Christian holds on to both joy and grief. They don't repress the fire. They let it happen. They don't go looking for it, but when, if, when it happens, their gut reaction is not to repress, avoid, distract, or drink it away. Why? Because they have a living hope that's imperishable. What do they do? When, what do you do? When trials come your way, when the heat picks up, what do you do? What does a Christian do? They sit in it long enough to ask themselves, what junk is being unsettled here? What's surfacing? What's coming up? You know, why does a Christian ask that question? Because they realize they're saved, remember? Not because they have good stuff in them. <laughs> they're saved because they were attached to Jesus Christ, their representative, their righteousness. They realize, you know what this means? That in, them, in themselves, all they have is a lot of sin and junk to deal with. So, the three things, how to handle unwanted suffering or heat when it comes, okay? Some of you might be in it right now. One, don't repress it. Don't repress it. That's not Christian to do so. Acknowledge it. Endure it. Why? Because, two, you realize this isn't wildfire. This is a controlled exercise. The goldsmith, the father is purifying you. This is fire in the hands of your loving Father who has your eternal fate and salvation guaranteed in the heavens above troubled water, unfading, imperishable in Christ. And because of that, three, as you endure it, because you realize your salvation is not based on you but based on his righteousness, as you endure the fire, you look around to see what sins in me that's being surfaced right now. And how do I deal with it? 
because you realize you're sinful inside. And your righteousness and salvation had to be earned by another. My wife's Instagram, and I asked her permission to share this story. Uh, my wife's Instagram got hacked recently, and it sounds silly. So if you got a request of sending money uh, to this guy, don't send it, okay? Send it, send it to us instead. No, don't. So, and it sounds silly, you know, when you talk about Instagram being hacked. And it's like, okay, that's not really a big deal. But if you're the one being hacked, it's actually, it feels pretty violating. You know, imagine somebody pretending to be you, asking for money to all your friends. You know, somebody you haven't talked to in three years. It's like, hey. <laughs> it's like, imagine, and you, you can't control it, okay? And, you know, they have all, you know, your, your captions and your pictures. They control to change any of that. You know, all your memories, your children's pictures, you know, they're, it's, pretty, it's pretty hard. It can get pretty hard, okay? And, you know, after all this, you know what her main takeaway is? Her main takeaway in this, you know, trial is not that she needs a better password. That, too, maybe. <laughs> I, I made the Facebook password, by the way, so it's my fault, okay? And the hacker went through Facebook, so warning. Okay, so... Um, and it's not that, you know, she needs a two-step verification. Yes, yes, we, we figured all that out. But after not being on the gram for 24 hours, okay, she started to realize it's the whole time it sucked. She started to realize how much time in life that Instagram has kind of been taking away from her. I mean, something that we all probably fall into every day. And you know what she realized? That she's been using Instagram to replace real community in her life. And this is what she said. I've been robbing myself from true community. And I know her. She's a great woman. You know, and I would say that you know, she's been robbing her community from her. And, you know, and now I have her password per her own request because she realizes I can't be trusted with this. I'm just going to get on this my whole time and think that this is my community. I don't want that to be the case. Tazar, you have the password. Don't tell me what it is unless, you know, within a permitted time that I log on. Why? So that she can be more present here. Bless and be blessed by the community, by the church that God has ordained for her to be in. And you see, as she, she sat in that, you know, that, that, that trial, that, that fire, that heat, right? She was more worried about how God is working in her rather than who to blame out there. She was more worried about what's surfacing in here rather than whose fault is it up there, although if you're the hacker and you're listening to this, shame on you. <laughs> but the focus is, she, went, she didn't say, ah, she went, show me, show me, show me what needs to be purified. Okay, this is why the health, wealth, prosperity gospel doesn't work. It doesn't work. The idea that your faith will make you rich and successful, you can't fit that into the Bible. You see, true faith doesn't give you money. True faith sanctifies you unto Christ-likeness in the midst of poverty. True faith won't get you married. True faith allows you to endure the fire of singleness in such a way that molds you into pure gold. True faith doesn't change the way your spouse behaves. It refines you towards meekness and selflessness through whatever hardship marriage may present. You see? True faith is not a currency. Okay, I want to say this sensitively. It's not a currency you can give to God so that he'll heal you from your diseases. True faith teaches you to number your days that you may get the heart of wisdom 
in the midst of your ailment. A lesson that the psalmist in chapter 90 and Solomon throughout Ecclesiastes say is more precious than riches. That's what faith does. That's what living hope does. That's one way your salvation in Christ affects you today. It allows you to have joy, not the kind of joy that deletes your pain, but the kind of joy that informs your pain. It allows you to endure the fire long enough that the dross may come out without running away from it, without repressing it, neither without, without being crushed by it. You know, I've heard a preacher say, you know what this does to the Christian? It makes the Christian both sadder than other people, but also happier than other people at the same time. You see, as a result, the Christian grows as they go through this fiery furnace, both insensitivity and sturdiness at the same time. If, if this is how you handle grief, you'll begin to see yourself develop an empathetic firmness, a compassionate sturdiness, a warm coolness. What does enduring fire do to the Christian? It brings up hidden sins. It molds them more and more into the image of the covenant, their covenant head representative, Jesus Christ. It makes them more empathetic and also sturdy at the same time. That's what it does. But you've got to hold on to joy and grief. You've got to hold on to living hope without it deleting your pain. Okay, that's what's going to give you the courage to endure the fire and a system of salvation that humbles you to be self-introspective instead of blame-shifting during the fire. Okay, I've seen, I've seen breakups destroy people. I've seen hard marriages wreck people. I've seen diseases defeat people. But I've also seen all those things turn people into pure gold. That's what trials do to those who have living hope. Now, it's not enough. Okay, it's, that's not enough. The fire gets too hot. It does. And you ask yourself the question, why do I want to endure it? You know, because I'm motivated by this desire to become more holy, and we scoff at that, right? Because there's a misunderstanding of what growth and holiness looks like. It's often misunderstood for the Christian to be growing in holiness is like it's some kind of self-development exercise, right? It's some self-improvement exercise where it's all about me growing in my character. That's not why the Christian wants to grow in holiness. Yes, it's for themselves. Yes, but it's not ultimately for themselves. You see, it's not ultimately just self-improvement for self-improvement's sake. That's not the gospel. So why should we endure the fire in this way? Why be self-introspective during it? Why grow in holiness? Why do all that hard work? Why not just drink it away? Why not just repress it? Last point. It's not just because of self-improvement. Last point, the reason why you'll keep going. Look at verse 7. The reason why you'll keep... And, and, and I made this point intentional. I didn't say the reason why you should keep going. I said the reason why you will keep going if you're in Christ. The reason why you'll keep going is not because you're strong. It's not. Look again at verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know, the fire gets really hot at times. And when we're in it for a long period of time, we say to ourselves, I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't stand this. And I'm here to tell you, yes, you can. Yes, you can. 
Why do I have such confidence? Because I think you're strong? Because I have confidence in you? No. I have no confidence in you. I'm sorry. I have no confidence in myself. It's not us that's strong. Look at verse 7 again. What is it in us, Christian, that's more durable than gold? Your faith is. Your faith in verse 7, it's what's described to be more durable than gold. Your faith is what's going to cause you to survive the fire. Now, you ask, what if my faith isn't strong enough? What if I don't have enough faith mustered up from within me to persevere? This is where you need to go back to Peter's system of salvation, friends, proclaimed in verses 3 to 6. What was his system of salvation? Why is your faith so sturdy? Hmm? Who gave it to you? Why is it imperishable? Whose power is guarding it? At one point in the, in the movie, The Lord of the Rings, I want to say book, but I haven't read him. So in the movie, The Lord of the Rings, in order to help Frodo, right, the main character in his journey, Bilbo Baggins gave Frodo something more valuable than anything else he owns, and it's something called the Mithril Vest. The Mithril Vest is a vest made out of dragon scales. Okay, it says it's stronger than silver, but lighter than steel. Okay, I'm, I'm not as cool as, and nerdy as I sound right now. I have to Google this for hours, okay? Not hours. So Frodo went on his journey, and he wore this vest underneath his shirt, underneath his coat. And during his journey, one day, he came about some trouble. He was confronted by an orc. And I read in one of the comments, a chieftain orc, mind you, which is stronger than a normal orc, Okay. And this orc with his, you know, this chieftain orc with his spear stabbed him, right? Stabbed him right through. And the spear went through his coat like butter. It went through his shirt right through. But once it came in contact with the mithril vest, that vest was so sturdy, it didn't go through it. There's something in you, Christian, sturdier than gold. Your troubles might pierce everything else about you, but never your faith. Why? Because you're strong? No. Because by God's power, it is being guarded for salvation to be revealed at the last time. You see, why did Paul say in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, God won't let you be tempted beyond your ability. You will be able to endure it. Not because you're durable, but because God's given you something in this journey sturdier, more long-lasting than gold, your faith. He gave it to you. He's guarding it for you. That's what's going to keep you going. He is. So how do you know you have this faith, right? How do you know God's given it to you? How do you know this whole church thing is not just something mommy and daddy did and now that I'm doing this because they did it? How do you know that? Hmm? It's because your love for Christ. Look at verse 8. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. You know why you have this living hope? You know why you have this durable faith that will endure through the fires of this world? You know why? The reason why you have it is because Christ took the divine power and the divine fire that was meant for you upon himself. That's why. You know the Old Testament story, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, refuse to bow down to idols that this Old Testament king Nebuchadnezzar created. And as a result, 
they're persecuted, much like the Christians here in First Peter, right, by the emperor of the time. Nebuchadnezzar threw them into this furnace, and unlike my usage of furnace in the sermon as a metaphor, they were literally thrown into a furnace, okay? And the fire was so hot that it burned the soldiers that stood nearby. But all of a sudden, the soldiers and King Nebuchadnezzar saw a fourth person in this fire, walking with them, walking with Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. And those who saw it said this, the fourth man appeared to be like the Son of Man. And the story goes, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego was delivered out of the fire, and not a hair upon their heads were singed, it says. But you know who never came out? The fourth man. The Son of Man. What do you think that story's about? Hmm? Why is God able to use the fires of this world to refine you instead of consume you? Why is he able to give you something so precious? Only because he gave up something precious to him. Because he came down himself as man, entered into the fiery wrath that we deserve for our sins on that cross, and he drank it all up for himself. On the cross, Jesus, in a sense, perished for our sins. On the cross, he was counted as a defiled guilty criminal, wise that we may have living hope, imperishable, undefiled, unfading, you see? You're not going to endure the fire if you're doing it for the sake of self-improvement. But you will endure the fire if you do it for the sake of the one who endured the ultimate fire that you deserved on the cross upon himself. The need for personal praise and personal glory and personal honor. See, that's what goes. That's what goes. At the end of the day, that's the dross that comes out and is burned by these fires. And as a result, in verse 7, you'll become a man and a woman who lives for the praises and the glory and the honor of Jesus alone and not you. Pure gold. Endure it. Endure it. Don't delete it. But at the same time, realize you have faith in you, given by the Father, guarded by his power, and you won't ultimately be crushed. So endure it. And as you do so, don't blame shift out there. Look internally. Be self-introspective. Pay attention to each dross that surfaces. Then kill it. Bring it to him. Bring it to your church community. Deal with it so that you be further equipped to live your life in such a way that brings utmost praise, glory, and honor unto him who took the fullness of your sin-deserved fire upon himself on that cross. That's who you love. That's who you're doing it for. His glory. May the Father build up his church through the power of the Spirit who has deposited this faith within you. Faith and love to Jesus Christ, your covenant head, your Redeemer. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not harm thee. I only design thy dross to consume, and thy gold to refine. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for wanting to avoid your discipline, for blame-shifting out there when fiery trials come instead of looking internally within, for not having living hope and falling to depression, but yet your gospel your system of salvation tells us and gives us the sturdiness to be able to endure it without being prideful because it's by your grace. and It's, it's, it's your 
valuable gift that gives us the power to do so by your faith in the person in Jesus Christ shown by our love for him. And Father, as we dwell upon him, our covenant head, as we fall in deeper love with Jesus who gave his life for us on that cross that we may live eternally, although he is crushed and killed and took the fire meant for us, may our love for him drive us forward to continually want to grow, be sanctified, be glorified, not for the sake of self-improvement, but so that we may have lives that give praise, honor, and glory unto him, this side of eternity. And when we see him, his hands and his feet, in that side of eternity, the lamb that was slain for us, we will know the wise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.